Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus essential plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. There's no innovation within the government now, which is why I hope things like the virus can help us wake us up to a new approach. I mean, you, you know, you, you listen to Billy Joel songs and you listen to Bruce Springsteen songs and you listen to these songs about the plight of the worker. Those were written in the 70s and 80s. This is still happening, you know, and we've not yet updated the government policies to address these deep, deep structural problems. And this is an opportunity, I think, for us to do that. The innovation in the public sector has been minimal. When you look at our food system, right? You look at healthcare costs, you look at the sicknesses in the country, you look at the high rates of diabetes and pre-diabetes, Alzheimer's, heart disease, high blood pressure, on and on and on. We're sick. We're sick. And we now know that a lot of this is coming from the food system. I walked into a school a year ago, there was a Rice Krispie treat and a chocolate milk for breakfast. Okay. So this kid, before he even walks into the first period class, they're at like 80 or 90 grams of sugar, right? You do this their entire school career while they're on the Medicaid program, and then they get diabetes, right? Because of the food we gave them. So if you're the government and you're thinking about, okay, we're watching the cost of healthcare go through the roof. Um, people are getting sicker. There's no way in 20 years we're going to be able to afford half the country having diabetes. We just can't afford it. And even look with the coronavirus, who's more susceptible to the corona? People with diabetes, people with heart disease, people with some of these other issues. But we've not yet innovated enough or thought enough or become aware enough to say, well, how do we shift our food system? You know, I've noticed you've been very aggressive proposing bills in the past month. You know, you always have a voice that stands out. I always notice your name popping up, you know, because you always have new ways of looking at things, whether it's six years ago, coming out of the closet with meditation or, <laughs> you know, talking about health and talking about now UBI to A, pick up consumer demand, but B, satisfy the fear that many consumers have right now. Like, they're scared. Yeah. If the economy's closed another six months and let's say they couldn't get unemployment, many people couldn't, it's a scary world. There's lines at food banks miles long right now. Yes. Awesome. This is great. Good. 
Awesome. I'm recording now, James. I, I feel like we have to clap. It's like, you know, when you landed the, the plane, when that's like a lot of turbulence. Sort of like how uh, wealthy people in skyscrapers clap for essential workers for three minutes. <laughs> <laughs> it's like it's the same thing. I love it. I love it. I will start off. So welcome back to the show, Congressman. T I'll start off here. Welcome back to the show, Congressman Tim Ryman. Ugh, why am I messing up? I'm like, well, I mean, like an Irish guy. Come on, man. You can't be messing up my name. I know. And look at my <laughs> name. It's Altucher. It's like uh, nobody can say. <laughs> Congressman Tim Ryan, welcome back to the show. You were last on way back when, when your book, A Mindful Nation, came out. Now you have a uh, an updated version of that book, Healing America, How a Simple Practice Can Help Us Recapture the American Spirit. And we could talk about that. But... I also want to talk about your your recent proposals involving uh, UBI in 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 this sort of coronavirus economic panic slash shutdown and other initiatives you've been doing uh, as a congressman lately. Also, your run for presidency since we last spoke, your run for Speaker of the House. You've been a very active congressman. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. I mean, I Thanks. admire that because it seems like a lot of you know, it seems like the general, and I, and I don't mean to criticize people in the house at all. I, I, this is not the intention at all, but it seems like a lot of people who are in Congress don't really stand out the way you do. You, you speak your mind, uh, and then, and then no matter how things go, you're able to patch things up and move forward and, and, you know, keep consolidating your friendships and, and partnerships and so on. You, you, I, what I'm saying is you do a very good job of, of getting your voice heard and then moving forward. Yeah, I, I appreciate that because it's a, you know, it's a business where people try to pigeonhole you and people try to hold grudges. And I, I always felt like if you speak your piece, uh, say it with the conviction that you feel uh, and do it respectfully, that that it's hard for people after the game is over, after the race is over, for people to really hold it against you because you handled yourself accordingly. I felt that way, you know, when I ran against uh, Leader Pelosi, now Speaker Pelosi, who I'm, I'm, I'm a big admirer of and was an ally with her for a long time, but felt like we needed change. And I never disrespected her. I never diminished her accomplishments. I just made my argument uh, at the time. And uh, and so, yeah, it works out afterwards. It's easier to make peace and move on. I mean, I, actually, I was going to ask about that. And and uh, you challenged her twice, once for minority le the minority leader position and next for the speaker position and was there any bad feelings at all afterwards like did she say hey you're going to this random subcommittee <laughs> you're not getting the the key spots like were, do you really feel like she you were able to bond with her afterwards yeah so i ran against her uh after donald trump won in 2016 and then and then we were talking about uh, you know, making some changes in that after 2018, but we had won the house back and there really wasn't the stomach, uh, I think, to make any changes after that. So we we kind of uh, wrapped it up and unified moving forward with the new house majority. And 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 she's been great. I mean, there's, there's no uh, hard feelings. Uh, you know, I think you always remember people who you compete with, um, but there's no hard feelings. There was no punishment. There was no retribution. Nothing along those lines. And we work very well together. I'm the chair of the committee that funds the legislative branch, which she's in charge of. 
And so we're working and our staffs are working almost daily together on various issues. And it's it's been a, a good relationship and I have an enormous amount of respect for her. Well, that's great. And obviously right now is a very tense time as, you know, there's so much politics swirling all around these different issues involved in coronavirus, whether it's on the health side or the economy side. Like right now, where where are you working from? Do you go back and forth to DC? Like how's, how, how are you guys getting stuff done? Yeah, I'm at my house uh, like everyone else. And in the middle of an interview with someone like you, the dogs bark because the Amazon guy's at the door and, you know, uh, the, the kids are home and my wife's a school teacher. She's home. Um, so it's been a very, very different life for us because I'm usually on the road three days a week and my wife is home with the kids and that's crazy. They're 17, 16 and Brady will be six. So very busy for her here. Um, but it's it's really this part of it has really been nice. I mean, we are able to do family dinners and cook on the grill and uh, and, and, and do some uh, home improvements that we've uh, put off for three or four years because I've been busy. <laughs> um and so I'm working from home and it's it's been great. I mean, it's hectic as ever, busy as ever. I mean, it's all day long and a lot of calls and media and just trying to keep up. Um, but it's been good. I mean, it's been for us, uh, it's been nice to really be able to reconnect with each other. And that's that's the blessing amidst the, you know, the tragedies that are happening every single day in our communities. And how is it like, do, are you still traveling? Like, how do you guys no. vote in Congress? Well, we did uh, the first big package we did by unanimous consent, which means everybody agrees and nobody objects. So there wasn't a vote. And then the la last week we did something where we did come down and vote. I, I literally drove down from Ohio, voted on two different bills and came back and they staggered the voting. You went by, uh, you know, A to, A to C or D voted in this 15 minute block and then the next section. And so they divided it up and you'd literally walk through get hand sanitizer, put your card in, vote and walk out with a mask on. And so we did that last week and uh, we're trying to figure out, you know, how to how to vote uh, distant from a distance, um, maybe proxy voting. So the House leadership is really trying to work that out now. What about something as simple as Zoom voting where, you know, essentially they they, you know, they recognize your face and maybe yes. a password <laughs> and you can vote. Like, it seems like, you know, the original reason for everybody to be in the same place for the vote is because the U S didn't have, we didn't even have telegraph. We, there was right. no way for everybody right. to be a part and vote. Yeah. Well, I think, uh, it's, it's, everything's public. I mean, that's, that's what I'm, I'm struggling to talk about the you know, or try, trying to get my head around the fact that I can do Facebook live and tell everybody, here are the three votes. Here's how I'm voting. It's me. Uh, and and off we go. I mean, you literally back in the day, it would be like they'd call your name out and you'd stand up and vote aye or no. And I, so there's a way around this. And I think they're, they're really working hard to try to figure it out because this has been going on since after 9-11. In the 9-11 report, uh, that was kind of reviewing how government, you know, didn't talk to different entities and the government didn't talk to each other. And that's how it happened. But there were recommendations moving forward for how to vote. What if one of those planes hit the Capitol? How are we going to vote? Uh, and so since after 9-11, we've been having this conversation about remote voting and we still haven't come to a, a conclusion on how, how it would work out best. But I, I'm all for it. Like I said, I'm just 
here I am, Tim Ryan, I'm voting yes on this bill. And you could even say why. So, you know, it could be could be better and 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 provide more information than normal. Yeah, and I want to I I'm really fascinated by uh and very in, interested in your recent uh proposal of doing an expanded UBI on top of this stimulus package. It's the you know, there's a lot of reasons I'm I'm interested in that. But but you just brought up something that I want to ask about, which is it's been 18 years or 19 years since 9/11 almost and yeah. you say you've been discussing that. Why can't they that seems like an, a very important thing to get done. You guys make the laws for the entire country and a 9-11 could happen or a crisis like this could happen. You have to be able to vote remotely for, for me, for my benefit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. You know, it's one of those things where it's talked about a little bit. There were a lot of other changes that came out of the, uh, you know, the the debrief from, from 9-11 and the commission's analysis and the report they gave of which this was one of them. I guess at the time, this seemed like something that maybe we could you could get kicked down the road a little bit. Um, but the reality of it, it is, is it's here. And this isn't a one-shot deal. Like after 9-11, we could go right back to the Capitol. And so pick, I think people easily forgot. Uh, yeah, the technology you know, might not have been there then. Now, now, yeah, I mean, it was, yeah, it was early 2000s. So it was a little bit of a different world. But now I think why this will, will stick now is because this is an extended period of time and it's going to continue to be an extended period of time. And yeah, maybe we can go back for a few months in the summer, but if this comes back in the fall or back in the winter, like everyone's saying it is, we are going to be right back in this position. So I think there's more incentive and momentum now to to um, do it now and do it right. Yeah, and, and you know, you just brought up something that I want to discuss also, which is the potential for second and third waves of this virus, but also really what that means is the uncertainty we're all living in. But I'll just, just one more thing on the remote voting. I'll go one step further. I would almost think it should be required to do remote voting instead of all in the same location because then lobbyists can't find you all in one place. <laughs> They'd have to travel all over the country. To you, think the Am- you think the Amazon guy's bad at the door, huh? Wait till the lobbyists start coming. <laughs> but it's going to be much more expensive. They're going to have to buy, hire 450 lobbyists, uh, one for each congressman. <laughs> uh, uh, so, so you recently, after this recent stimulus package, you recently brought to life the, uh, you know, uh, the Andrew Yang suggestion of a UBI, uh, universal basic income. And yep. Andrew Yang's initial thoughts were a thousand dollars a month, and his reasoning was, you know, automation yep. is going to hit the country, and he, 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 you know, sort of argued that it could uh, result in a loss of significant numbers of jobs in various industries, and that a UBI, while not sufficient, nobody's going to live off of a UBI. It is sufficient right. for retraining and and kind of a bridge to kind of bring American workers to the. Uh, let's call it America 2.0 to the next to the next level. Yep. Your suggestion of two thousand dollars a month plus, uh, I think you mentioned five hundred dollars for each kid, similar to the stimulus package. Or it's an expansion though, because in the stimulus package it was twelve hundred dollars one time for for adults. Uh, just what a little bit, just describe it and what was your thinking, and then I have some some questions, of course. Yeah. Um, so the the whole idea, obviously, I. I've got an enormous amount of respect for Andrew Yang. I, I thought he really articulated during the presidential race the the complexities of the American economy and the changes that are here and the changes that are to come. Uh, he, he really had his finger on that. And I, I've got a great deal of respect for him. 
And so uh, six weeks ago or so, Congressman Rokana and I, he's a congressman in Northern California, uh, were talking about this idea of the one-time cash payment. We pushed it, and that started the conversation that led to the $1,200 one-time payment, mm. uh, which we didn't think was enough and clearly isn't enough. I mean, anybody who's staying in close contact with people in the real world, that's that's not enough. And so we are pushing this idea of $2,000 a month for everybody who makes less than $130,000 a year. Uh, couples who make less than $260,000 a year would get $4,000. And if everybody from 16 years old and older uh, would get it, Social Security, veterans, and it would be a monthly payment for six months. And I, it's needed to stabilize things. I mean, we're, we're hearing stories of, yeah, there are people getting unemployment that are making a little bit more than they were making before, you know, uh, before this happened and while they were working. But there are millions and millions of people who are making a hell of a lot less than they were. Uh, and they are these grocery workers and these essential workers. And, and so if, here, here's the reason. One is to stabilize and make sure people aren't falling behind on their mortgages, their car payments, their you know, all of the, the personal loans, credit cards. We know how in debt we are. We've got to make these payments. That's one just to stabilize. But two is the economics of coming out of this thing. We It is just going to be a huge drag if people are defaulting on their mortgage payments and car payments and all these things. We'll never get out of this thing. A deep recession could very easily turn into a depression or a longstanding deep recession. And so if we want, the economists say V, v curve or U curve, if we want to have a U curve, you better have some people that have made their payments, stabilize themselves, and then have some money in their pockets once we open up restaurants. 70% of the economy is consumer spending, so you need that wage continuity in order to get ourselves out of this thing. And that's why we're pushing it. And uh, we got a lot of momentum. Andrew Yang came out, and the Yang Gang's very active on social media now supporting oh, it. Oh, if, you, very- if you get the Yang Gang to support you... That's like this huge <laughs> rush of dopamine. But suddenly, <laughs> suddenly they're all retweeting you and they exactly. lo- feel the love. <laughs> we're, well, we're feeling it. Uh, and it's it's been great. And then Speaker Pelosi came out a few days ago and said that this, this really has a lot of merit and we need to have this as part of the discussion of the next package. So it's gone from me and Rokana screaming about it to Mitt Romney and some Republicans agreeing to a one-time payment to now the 2000 a month, the Yang gang, and uh, Speaker Pelosi kind of tipping her hat that it's a good idea. So we'll just see where it goes, but we're going to keep pushing it. And you highlighting this is obviously uh, a big deal for us because I think it's it's would be the most impactful thing we can do. And just quickly, these small business owners that are getting crushed right now, crushed, um, they draw their income from the business, right? So it's a mom and pop shop. That's how they get paid. And I think these business owners would also be eligible for this as citizens. It would stabilize them and their families. It may not help get their business up and running, but it's going to it's going to be a lifesaver for a lot of these small businesses because most of them don't make more than one hundred and thirty thousand dollars a year or two hundred and sixty thousand dollars a year. That's they're under that. So they would qualify and they would be stabilized. You're absolutely right. And I and I like the fresh look on. So I always like the UBI idea, even when when Yang was running for president. I didn't I wasn't always sure about the way he presented it. Like I didn't view it as you know, automation versus the world, because ultimately automation provides innovation and increases productivity, which has historically provided for new jobs. Now it's, you know, Andrew had a point that 
maybe in this case, it wouldn't provide for new jobs, but that's an unknown. But here you're right. It's clear that this virus, there's a lot of uncertainty. 30 million people now have filed for unemployment. $1,200 one time wasn't enough. And, you know, as I, I, you know, I'm invested in a bunch of industries, but I'm also a a small business owner in a a storefront in, in New York city. And the, the PPP, the small business loans were good, but not every small business got it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's been a lot of confusion around that there's been a lot of bureaucracy and it's also, as you mentioned, it's unclear who's going to be the ultimate recipients of these funds. Like the employees now have, have gone off, particularly in New York city, people have left the city. So we don't know what, what it will be when we reopen, nobody knows what it's going to look like. So it's unclear the, the use of funds or when it's going to actually be used to stimulate the economy. Cause there's two uses. One is to protect the people who are, who potentially could starve and, and, <clears throat> and run out of money. And the other is to, uh, stimulate the economy and, and get demand opening once the economy opens. And so I do think direct to the consumer or direct to the, the worker at this point is important. Like if you think about it, and I'm curious what your thoughts were on this with the 2 trillion stimulus, if you had got, uh, just handed everything directly to the worker, that might've been, I don't know, 15 to $20,000 per ho- worker anyway. And maybe we didn't need as much as I'm happy that small businesses will survive. Maybe it was more important for, for demand and mental health and so on to just allocate the whole stimulus directly to the consumer. It would have gotten into the economy faster. Yeah. I, you know, part of the lesson here is, is from the package, uh, that, that put together the, the quote unquote stimulus package, uh, from the Obama era, um, which, you know, stabilized things. There were some really important things in there, but before that we did TARP and, and, and that was where we're, you know, we're giving money to the banks and, and maybe we did, but maybe we didn't. But if we gave money to the consumers to pay on their mortgages, then the consumers would have been able to uh, be stabilized in that whole thing. And maybe we could have prevented the run on the housing market and the defaults and all the rest that we saw. I mean, that wasn't the, you know, there was a lot of reasons why that happened. But so that informed our decision here really to say, how do we focus on the consumer? How do we stabilize the consumer and everything else uh, will be stabilized from there? And really a conversation that's, and I've been saying this now for for a month, uh, I've been arguing it for years, but really focusing in the month is we've got to move from a supply side economic theory to a demand side economic theory. And if we can get wages up, we can get consumer uh, consumers more stable, reduce income inequality, then we're going to be in a much better place uh, than we have been probably over the last 30 years. That's a larger conversation that maybe you know we can have here because it's a longer format, but it's about really putting comprehensive policies together on how we dominate these industries of the future. And that was kind of where I parted ways a little bit with, with Andrew. I think he may have answers about this that I that I didn't know about or didn't hear about, but it, real policies around how do we dominate artificial intelligence and how do we get artificial intelligence into the small and mid-sized manufacturers in the United States so they can crank up productivity. And like you said, that will lead to job creation. How do we dominate additive manufacturing and 3D printing? Because there's going to be three to five million new jobs created in additive in the next you know, five to 10 years. But we need a comprehensive policy uh, on how we do that. Electric vehicles. 
How do we dominate the electric vehicle market where there's going to be tens of millions of electric vehicles? And then the charging stations, which is going to be a multi-trillion dollar industry. In each of those areas, there's opportunity for us to really lift up the middle class. We've got to significantly close the skills gap. But if we do that, that's how you lift people up. And that's what I when I talk about moving to more of a demand side. Yeah, it's about it's about protecting the workers. But at the same time, it's about having real constructive, integrated policies between the public sector and the private sector. Yeah, no, I agree with that, particularly in terms of, you know, using the UBI so that people can spend this time or have spare time to learn these new skills like AI, big data, robotics, drones. These are areas that seem very technical, but there are, there are, there, there's a hundred layers of skill. And a lot of these skills you can go from being a, a paralegal at Procter and Gamble to being an, an AI technician or support specialist or whatever. There's, there's knowledge for everybody to, to gain. And, and there's no, there's nothing in place right now to teach people these important skills so that we stay, so that America stays first in it. Yeah. And, and, and the, 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 the great lie of everybody has to go to college has permeated the culture and poison. Oh my God. I yeah. can't believe you just said that. Yeah. But go it's, ahead. It, well, <laughs> It's poison the well, you know, and so we, we, we need a culture shift as to what's really important and how you're going to get a good job. And that's why I think we haven't been able to close the skills gap. People are working at General Motors in Lordstown, Ohio, and all of a sudden the plant closes. Where's the national culture more than programs, but culture of, look, we're going to help you with some, uh, you know, wage support because you're going to have a little drop off. But. We're going to give it to you as long as you're getting retrained. And here, because we've had this in national industrial policy or different comprehensive policies, here are the areas that are growing and here are the areas that we're going to be able to uh, plug you into. And I think that changes the psychology of a worker by saying, well, there's all these other opportunities. Man, that sucks. I lost my job. But within 12 weeks, I'm going to be doing X, Y or Z in wind or solar or this or that. It's a different psychology as opposed to, hey, you got to go to college now, pal. Sorry. You know? Yeah, no, I, I think part of the the college marketing that has happened over the past 30 or 40 years is that, you know, if you go to an accredited, quote unquote, accredited school, it becomes then a shortcut for employers to weed out, you know, the haves and the have nots. Here, This person has a bachelor's degree. This person might have the skills, but no bachelor's degree. Right. What if there was something similar for these much, much cheaper online schools. Like, you know, now we've had Khan Academy, Code Academy, LinkedIn Mm -hmm. Learning, Skillshare, Udemy, Udacity. What if there was sort of accredited, officially accredited micro degrees for, you know, AI or mobile phone programming, or I don't know what else, self-driving or big data. Like what if, what if uh, UBI was kind of tied to or maybe even extended if someone was in a micro degree program. I think that that that's one of the ideas. I mean, that's part of the conversation that we need to have is what skills do you have? We talk about this all the time about people who leave the military, right? And you leave the military and you've been driving these huge trucks and you come back to the United States and you, you know, you got to go take a, a CDL license. You know, you're like driving these massive vehicles in the middle of Af- the mountains of Afghanistan. You come back to America and say, well, sorry, pal, you need to take a test, you know. And they're like, well, you know, I don't know what I'm going to do all that. But it's just another 
hurdle. You talked about America 2.0. I have a leadership pack, you know, to help other candidates. And my leadership pack is called America 2.0. We have got to start talking about, look, here's the landscape. Here's where we are. Here's what's coming and where we need to be. Maybe UBI is a part of that as we move forward. And I'm warming more and more up to the UBI idea as I continue to talk and uh, about this one-time cash payment. Here are the sectors of the economy growing. Uh, wh- where's the grand strategy? You know, I mean, when you th- when you think about after World War II, we had the GI Bill. Uh, we had, you know, uh, all of these things to help veterans come back with housing. We had the interstate highway network was in the works on how we're going to do that. We had the Marshall Plan on how to build demand up back up in, in Europe. Uh, we had all of these strategies that were in place, the, the Tennessee Valley, and then moved on to NASA and all. We had big ideas that were pushing the entire economy along, uh, not government run, but just comp- comprehensive strategies. And what you're saying is exactly the same thing in informing what that next you know version looks like. Yeah. And so, I mean, there's a, a couple directions to go here, but let, let's start with uh, the economics. You mentioned demand side economics versus supply Hi, side economics. Um, I think uh, Congressman Tim Ryan has to jump off for a press conference he's hosting right now. Uh, oh. I just got a call from, from your office. Can we come back in 10 minutes? Yeah. yeah, yeah. I'll be here. Yeah, I'll be here. Yeah. You'll be there? Yeah, yeah. This is a Looking great forward. conversation. I don't want yeah, it to yeah. end. Yeah. No, no, no. Have fun on the press conference. We'll, we'll be here. We'll just be hanging out. I'm okay. going to play online chess until you get back. All right. <laughs> All right. You got the life, man. All right. I'll see you in a minute. Okay. Have fun. All, All right. right. James, I'm going to stop recording right now. Uh, okay. I'll be right here. James, this is great. I'm loving it. Yeah, no, it'll be interesting. Good luck. Okay. Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I I lived in over 100 or 200 different Airbnbs over a three-year period. And I loved it. I I became a really good guest of Airbnbs. And I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I, of course, the first thing I thought was I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests and having my own Airbnb or, or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love, you know, turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away. And I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three-story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty, who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. 
Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Daylight savings time is starting up again. Okay, podcast is over. That's all you needed to know. But why do we have uh, daylight savings time? Answer, to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting your clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day that initial, when we initially start daylight savings. But if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to find qualified candidates for you. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you reach more of the right people. This is such a brilliant idea for a business and ZipRecruiter did it. So ZipRecruiter's smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. I've used ZipRecruiter particularly as a potential employee and I still to this day get messages every day. James Aldacher, would you like to apply to be VP of entertainment at NBC or whatever. So there's just nonstop emails. Like I got five or six emails today because of because a year ago I signed up for ZipRecruiter. So spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Hey, listen, men's health is important. Men act all cocky and like they don't need anything. But the reality is, as you get older, there's some things you need. And it often feels like we're too busy to take care of our health problems. Like I'd rather do anything then go to the doctor or the dentist or the pharmacy or whatever. But now you don't have to waste your time if you use HIMS. HIMS, H-I-M-S, HIMS is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Jay, you listening to all this? Yes, I definitely gotta use him for now. Not on. that you need it. You're you're young and healthy, James. I'm 35. You, you're getting there. You might you might need it. Who knows? But if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No insurance is needed. You can manage your plan on the Hims app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at Hims dot com slash James. Could you imagine that there's a whole section just with my name on it? Hims.com slash James. That's how I how much I am representative of the kind of person who needs hymns. That's HIMS.com slash James for your personalized treatment options. Hims.com slash James. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash James for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. Awesome. How, how, was, the, how was the press conference? 
Uh, it's pretty painless. We're doing a thing on hazard pay, but then the one guy asked me about Biden, so I had to answer that question. It's, it's tough to, to balance it all. Yeah. I don't want to talk about that. I want to talk about what I want to talk about. Exactly. <laughs> Particularly because there's a difference between the game of the elections and like getting actual things done right now in a crisis. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So, okay. So we were talking about uh, degrees and education and what's important and maybe kind of a an AI Manhattan project even, or some way to yeah. incentivize or to tie universal basic income or your proposal of a UBI to maybe some of these micro courses, not, sort of like an enhanced GI bill, but not colleges, instead these online learning places. Yeah, and and you know, I, I, I really think that um, if you help workers with wages, you know, because many of these workers are going to go from a job at General Motors, say, where you're making, you know, sixty-five or seventy thousand dollars a year with uh, overtime, you, you're not going to find that job really anymore, like in manufacturing. So, uh, or a lot of them won't. And so, help them with the wage transition, and maybe there's some wage insurance in there to help while they're you know, figuring out this next technology or next skill set that they're going to um, be able to develop. That's that's going to be critical to have to be able to kind of smooth over um, the, the transition. And I think the coronavirus, James, like this is changing everything. So I think everybody is becoming more and more comfortable with Zoom calls and negotiating online, even if you weren't really good at it a month or two ago, you know, the, the zoom happy hours and virtual yeah. happy hours. Like I got people getting on virtual happy hours that, that are just like, they need to connect it to people and they're going to figure it out and, and have a bourbon with their friends because otherwise they're going to go crazy. And so they figured it out. So I think this is a much different conversation now than it would have been, you know, several months back when people would have said, ah, hell, I'm not doing it. You're seeing this in telemedicine. You're seeing many doctors because they were, we switched the reimbursements so they can get reimbursed for uh, telemedicine visits. And you see older seniors who don't want to go out, who have figured out probably with the help of some family who have figured out how to do these telemedicine visits. So the telemedicine visits are up and, but there's no going back from that as long as we keep the reimbursement in place. So this has changed things and we've got to be very much like art of war here. You know, how do we take these changes and really mold them into the America 2.0 that we keep talking about? Yeah, and it's interesting with telemedicine because you can imagine with without having to make an appointment, without having to fill out all these forms, without having to then wait for the nurse, then the doctor and explain your story twice. You could imagine something where you fill out one form. These are my symptoms. This is what I'm experiencing. And it could even match that with some AI database of symptoms and you know diagnoses that have happened in the past and so the doctor become you know everything becomes more efficient productive the doctor has solutions much faster or 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 has, at least has much more sophisticated questions more quickly you know there's a lot of intersection between this new normal and what and the new future as well but you're right mate but it's sort of like we need the skills we need people now on the ground developing these technologies. 
Yeah, and and it's got to be it's got to be the culture shift. What what uh, uh, earlier you said something about demand side economics versus supply side? I was curious what you meant by demand side. Well, the, the supply side theory over however many decades now of you know you cut taxes for the top one percent, you dram- dramatically lower corporate rates, uh, and you kind of let the the free market play out, deregulation and all the rest, as opposed to uh, you know, making sure that the markets are well regulated. I'm a capitalist, but it, we need to have you know well regulated markets. I think that would be a component, consumer protections, and all the rest. Uh, making sure that those investments are made, making sure we are concerned about wages and closing the skills gap. Those take public investments that will lift everybody up. And so, by lifting everybody up, they're going to have more cash in their in their pockets because they got the skills to get the wages. And so the focus is really on how do we get the wages up um, for uh, for those workers? How do we make sure that, uh, you know, they have enough money to pay for their prescription drugs? How do we help make health care more affordable, uh, make, sh- make college affordable, make training affordable? How do we reinvest back in the public uh, schools? So it's kind of tipping the balance of like just cut taxes for the wealthiest and hope things work out to we need a little more comprehensive plan and how do how do the human beings uh, fit into this whole thing yeah because it seems like lately at least you know this term the velocity of money the amount of time or the amount of times a dollar gets through the system has gone down meaning if i get a dollar and i spend it on a newspaper and the newspaper guy buys a coffee that same dollar is now 2 dollars worth of gdp growth and when you just you know, I haven't always felt this way, but when you just kind of say, here's a small business loan to Shake Shack or whoever for $10 million, usually that just goes in the bank and there's no velocity of money. The money just stays in the bank. But if you give 2000 a month to consumers, people, Americans don't save money. And also many people need money. Oh, there's your dog. Yeah, uh, <laughs> every time. Many consumers need money now to buy food and and training and and clothes and so on so i i bet you with your idea here the velocity of money will greatly increase and that fuels gdp the economy goes from a u to something more closely resembling a v and yes i think maybe some small businesses will be in 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 trouble but like you said there's also going to be more consumer demand so it's it's unclear and i that's why i think this is worth a try yeah yeah no doubt my, my grandfather was a steel worker, uh, worked in the union in Northeast Ohio, uh, made a good wage, uh, worked a lot during the war and, and uh, all his brothers went off, but he worked a lot and saved some money. But he, they were making a wage back then where he, he had a, a couple of political rules, not a lot of them, but you always vote for the police and fire levies and you always vote for the school levies. Um, because that's how you build a good community. And if you have people on the ground with money in their pocket, that the velocity of money is also going into the local public investments that need to be made. And they're being made at a local level around police and fire, mental health, libraries, all these levies that get put on. Nobody votes for them anymore because the wages are down. So, So you have school districts struggling to get 3D printers in there or the coding classes in there or the technology to help close the digital divide. 
That's because people don't have the money. They, it's not that they don't want to invest in the school. It's not that they don't value education. It's that you have you know, millions of people in the country that can't afford to have an increase in their property tax or sales tax or whatever the mechanism um, would be. And so that velocity of money also applies to the public investments that could be made, too. Uh, and, I, you know, I've got a friend who's a big Democrat, um, big business guy, makes a lot of money and he, he sells uh, he sells things. And, you know, he's got big stores and he says, look, I I want people to have a lot of money in their pocket because they're going to come to my store and they're going to buy my stuff. You know, it's like. It's pretty elementary when you when it when you get down to it. Yeah, and and you know part of the criticism in the past of UBI has been, well, you just can't print money out of thin air, or uh, you know, if you give people money, they're not going to have incentive to work. And I think Andrew Yang dealt nicely with the second question, which is just, you know, look, a thousand dollars a month, two thousand dollars a month, that's not enough to really satisfy families and and you know people who who yeah. typically make more than that. But, but again, it's good transition. Now, the first question has been answered in this crisis. We suddenly did print $2 trillion. And, <laughs> yeah. and, and so like, what was all the problem before? Well, so I called up um, uh, Jim McKelvey, who's a deputy chairman of the St. Louis Fed. And he had a really good explanation, which, you know, maybe helps you or not, or maybe you probably already know this, but, you know, he, he, their view is, is that there's so much demand for the U.S. dollar around the world that they can't even get inflation if they want it because so many mm. people so many countries and wealthy people are loaning or you know demanding u.s treasury bills that that keeps deflationary pressure on the dollar so now is actually the perfect opportunity particularly when demand is low this this, this is the perfect opportunity to start at least a six-month ubi and and maybe extensions on certain incentives and so on yeah I mean, yeah, it, it, I, I, I like this because again, it, it solves, you know, we're a sophisticated economy. We're supposedly the best economy in the world. And yet people are miserable. Like you said, workers income is flat over the past almost 30 years for, yeah. for middle-aged middle-income workers. And that seems like a shame. Like you said, they can't now it's, they're getting more constricted. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you, you know, you, you listen to Billy Joel songs and you listen to Bruce Springsteen songs and you listen to these songs about the plight of the worker. Those were written in the 70s and 80s. This is still happening, you know, and, and we've not yet updated the government policies to address these deep, deep structural problems. And this is an opportunity, I think, for us to do that in addition to some of the other, you know, things that we've talked about. But you look at the reforms uh, that that may have happened in the private sector, the innovation in the public sector has has been minimal, um, and and this could lead us into a, a broader discussion. But when you you look at our food system, right? You look at healthcare costs. You look at the sicknesses in the country. You look at the high rates of diabetes and pre diabetes, Alzheimer's, heart disease, high blood pressure, on and on and on. We're sick. We're sick. And, and we, we now know that a lot of this is coming from, from the food system. Uh, we eat 75% of the costs of our healthcare system come from chronic diseases that are largely preventable, 75%. And most of that comes from some of it's smoking and other things, but most of that comes from our food. So if you're the government and you're thinking about, okay, we're watching the cost of healthcare go through the roof. 
Um, people are getting sicker. There's no way in 20 years we're going to be able to afford half the country having diabetes. We just can't afford it. And even look with the coronavirus. Who's more susceptible to the corona? People with diabetes, people with heart disease, people with some of these other issues. But we've not yet innovated enough or thought enough or become aware enough to say, well, how do we shift our food system? If we're incentivizing growing food and we're paying farmers to grow this or grow that, why are we paying them to grow things that are getting converted into high fructose corn syrup, soy oil, wheat oil, like all of these things that lead to highly, highly, highly processed food that over the course of our lifetimes has made us really, really sick. And if you want to America 2.0, it means How do we focus on regenerative agriculture, sustainable agriculture? It sequesters carbon. It grows healthy food. It's more locally sourced. And we can start bending the curve on uh, on our healthcare costs and have doctors. I've got a bill uh, that that says it's mandatory for us and we help pay for a little bit for the medical schools to teach doctors about diet nutrition instead of turning to the pharmaceutical industry. That's just one example, but there's no innovation within the government now, which is why I hope things like the virus can help us wake us up to a new approach. That's just one example. I mean, you can go into education and you talk about we don't have trauma-informed care the way we do, and now we have all this brain research from the last you know 20 or 30 years that shows us Uh, that a traumatized brain literally can't access its prefrontal cortex and its executive functions on learning and working memory and decision-making, like really kind of important things you need in your brain to function with if you're going to be learning things. Um, But we don't have that comprehensive trauma-informed care, social and emotional learning, teaching contemplative practices and mindfulness and things to our school kids to get them out of fight or flight and get them to be able to learn. So when you're talking about America 2.0, it goes from UBI uh, dominating these industries, closing the skills gap, social emotional learning and trauma-informed care in our schools, regenerative ag uh, to help in, draw that connection into uh, healthcare, uh, but also prevention. And I mean, there's a million great things happening in the country and the government's like totally last of the dance. So why do you think this happens? Do you think uh, and 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 would you say is there any role where politics is to blame because everybody's just trying to pander to their constituents? Oh, you know, you want to eat more Twinkies? Yeah, vote for me. I'm not changing a thing. <laughs> yeah. So, like, <laughs> yeah. how how much can we? How much can politicians really educate their constituents as opposed to just pandering um, for them? Yeah, it, well, it's hard because it's a longer conversation, right? I mean, that's why we can talk about this in a. Um, in a, on a podcast where we have an extended period of time to really kind of, you know, uh, peel the onion back layer by layer by layer and have this broader discussion. That's not necessarily happening in the world today. But, you know, the reality of it is most people don't like the way things were. I mean, so that's the upside is maybe people are ready for, you know, a more uh, more detailed conversation around some of these ideas. I think that's part of it. The, I mean, I think the, the logjam now, in my estimation, is the Republicans want to take government down and the Democrats want to defend the status quo. Right. Because we started these programs. These have been great. And many, in many ways, they are still effective in helping people to some extent. But don't touch them. We I want the Democrats to be the party of innovating these things and, and breaking that logjam. And I hope, again, 
that as we come out of the virus, we've slowed down a little bit. We've we've looked at how our public health system, uh, you know, in some ways failed because some of it was most of it was leadership, but the disinvestments in public health, PPEs, and all these other things you you hear about, um, and you know, the president saying you can't go and get on the Affordable Care Act exchange in the middle of a global pandemic. I mean, that's th- those are personal. I think things that I would associate more with him than anybody else, but you can't have two parties that are in this log jam. And when I was running, what I tried to do is talk about social and emotional learning. And I tried to talk about having an industrial policy. It was harder, harder to break through because it is a longer conversation, but you know, I, I think there's an opportunity here to have a political realignment. I mean, I really believe that there, there are moderate Republican women uh, and, and men uh, who maybe shop at Whole Foods, have a, have, a, have a real understanding of how food affects our health and would love to hear and maybe vote for a Democrat who was trying to say, why are we wasting all of this money? We're just throwing it at the healthcare system without any of the real reforms in place around health. You know, so instead of talking about health care, why don't we talk about health? I think a lot of moderate Republicans would say, damn. That's what I'm talking about. I don't mind paying, but geez, oh, Pete's, you know, I'm throwing money down a black hole here, you know, and no one's getting healthy and you want more of my money to pay for the bill. But if you have a con, you know, I mean, here's the school. Now you got me fired up. But now when you when you talk about um, schools, the public pays for school lunches and school breakfasts. Right. Right. So you go to a new school that's 80 or 90 percent, you know, free and reduced lunch. It's probably 80 or 90 percent Medicaid, which is the, the health care system for for poor, the poor. And and so we pay as taxpayers to to fund these food programs. I walked into a school a year ago. There was a Rice Krispie treat and a chocolate milk for breakfast. OK, now I'm not a prude. I'm an 80 percenter. Right. If you're healthy, 80 percent of the time you cheat. Like I like cheating. I like my ice cream. I drink beer. You know, I. I I'm good, 80%. But we're feeding our kids with taxpayer money, chocolate milk and Rice Krispie treats. Then they go to lunch and have something that's probably not good for them and an additional, they can get an additional sweet and blah, blah, blah. So this kid, before he even walks into the first uh, period class, they're at like 80 or 90 grams of sugar, right? You do this their entire high, their entire school career while they're on the Medicaid program, and then they get diabetes because of the food we gave them, right? And then we don't, we haven't addressed issues in, in neighborhoods with food deserts and all of that. And so now we're paying for a kid that has diabetes, which will lead to a complete increase in costs for other things or parents and the other things. And the, and the, and the, and the taxpayers going, what in the hell are you guys doing? Because now I got to pay on the back end to deal with the diabetes when you paid for the food to get them diabetes in the first place. So that's a that's a that's a oversimplification of what's happening. But that is what's happening here. Right. And then that's why the average person's like, I'm done. I'm not voting. You're all crazy. Right. Like, I think there's a, a lack of trust in overall leadership. Like nobody knows where to turn. The media is so polarized. Neighbor versus neighbor is so polarized. And so they're, yeah. they're focusing on the game of it rather than the issues. How does this actually, what's a path for getting this done? Like how does Congress work? 
Like what happens from here? You have an idea, you have a voice that's, that's recognized in Congress. You've, you've spoken up before and, and people listen. How does this, what's a path to getting this done? Well, you know, President Lincoln used to say public sentiment is everything. And, and my hope is that, that because this virus has, has shifted everything and we're seeing a new appreciation for the cashier, a new appreciation for the frontline healthcare workers, a new appreciation for teachers because people are homeschooling their kid. And all of a sudden they said, dang, like, I can't believe this teacher does this every day with like 30 kids in the classroom. I'm going nuts with just one or two in my house. So if the culture can shift and there's a deeper appreciation for each other, then the conversations around UBI and in the trauma, the mental health issues, really, James, are going to continue to increase throughout society in the next in the coming months and years because of what's happened here. It's already a huge issue and it's going to get worse that maybe we can have some like slow down and have some compassion and have a, have a broader conversation around really, okay, shit just got real. Um, How do we want to move from this? Just kind of like the depression did and world war two did like, how do we move? How'd they move out? They moved out together. You know, there was a lot of togetherness. Uh, Civic institutions had high participation rates. Churches had high participation rates built the middle class unions weren't always loved, but they were appreciated because they were looking out for the workers. People came together in unions. So there was a lot of togetherness that came from that, those tragedies and that culture shift is going to be key. I think the policies are always going to be second, but if there's a general sense of, okay, this is scary. We were more susceptible because we had diabetes, because we had this, we put, because we had that, how do we get healthy? That's when there's an opening for the new ideas that's when the Andrew Yang and the Tim Ryans of the world need to really be front and center to say, I've got all this, uh, I've got all these policy ideas around trauma-informed care. I've got these policy ideas around getting healthy. Andrew's got his policy ideas around uh, UBI and social-emotional learning uh, in the schools and all of these things. But there's got to be that, that crack, that opening, and I hate not to get cheesy, but like an open-heartedness a soft heartedness as opposed to like, can I, can I swear on this show? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, okay. We're all about swearing. I, okay, good. Cause I'm from Ohio and that's what we do. I just, I, I want people to get out of this whole thing and it's going to be a tragedy. And I want them to say, I'm not fucking going back to this where we were. I'm not going to do it. I, that's how I feel. I'm like, I'm not going back to polarization, demagoguery, shaming and blaming, like everybody's stupid if they don't agree with you 100%. Like I'm not I don't want to go back to that. That that was a terrible that that sucked, you know? Like it did, that's but a I terrible wonder, way to do things. Now I, can we come and have a like a nice conversation here and I'm wrong and you're wrong and I'm right and you're right. Like we all and then we massage it and we move forward together. What you would you would think is the essence of democracy that two people who disagree can be free to say what they want and then come to a common ground or maybe a new solution. You know, for instance, just in the past couple of days, you had a conversation that I, uh, I, I listened to your video on it or your audio on it, uh, with treasury secretary Mnuchin about UBI. And he also was interested in a, but if this is a bipartisan effort, he would be behind it is what was seemed to be the suggestion. And again, the argument can't be anymore. Well, we can't afford that. We just afforded it. <laughs> And, yes. and we're pushing yeah. for three more of it. So, you know, yeah. it's, it's, 
it's kind of happening, but not as a, I think the problem right now is if I may say so, is that there's so much uncertainty. Is it going to happen? Is it not going to happen? How long is this virus going to last? If we have a, if, if the economy reopens, but I could only fill my restaurant 25%, my restaurant's definitely going out of business. Like people just don't know what's happening right now. And I think that's yeah. a real big part of the problem. And, and uncertainty leads to, leads to fear, leads to, leads to anger, leads to this polarization. I wonder how Congress can even address that. Like, is it possible to be bipartisan right now with the executive branch and really work on something a as a team? Or is just everybody fighting for this next election? Well, the last two bills have been bipartisan, significantly bipartisan. So that has worked. You know, my fear is that now as we've gotten through, you know, these first two big bills is that 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 it's I can already see it percolating up. Oh, let the states go bankrupt. So, what? Really? We're going to let the states go bankrupt? Did they do something wrong that I missed here? Uh, other than be on the front lines of all of this. And so you're starting to see some levels of posturing uh, around some of these issues, which is really really disappointing. I, I will say that, you know, from your perspective, I mean, you're kind of a big thinker. Uh, obviously, Andrew is. I, I like to think I am. At least I, I, I try to be. And and the ideas that we're pushing, I want them to, like, blow through the left-right divide because I think, I, I think the left-right divide is just, it's stale. It's like, it's not applicable. It's like the whole world changed in, in like these two groups are having discussions around things that aren't, I don't know if they apply. Um, and, and so how do we come with ideas? And some of the things that I mentioned, like if you're talking about, you know, using food as medicine, for example, which is a whole thing that's happening in the, in the real world um, where you can reverse chronic disease through diet nutrition, literally reverse heart disease, literally, you know, reverse uh, type two diabetes. It's happening. Now, is that Democrat or Republican? Like, no clue. Sounds pretty smart to me. You could probably make right. a Democratic argument. Hey, we need a little innovation here from government to incentivize things differently. But it also sounds kind of conservative because it's saving a lot of money, right? You look at social and emotional learning. It's backed by, the, um, by a right-wing uh, think tank. Uh, and, and it's backed by the Brookings uh, Institution, because it deals with the emotional trauma that our kids have. And we all recognize that they're not going to be able to learn. And it's going to cost everybody a hell of a lot more money if we don't deal with the adverse childhood experiences that these kids are experiencing. And these kids are white and they're black and they're brown and they're in urban settings they're in rural settings. And so to come together with two major institu institutions, Republican and Democrat, around that solution, why don't we just full throttle on that mother right now and, and get this out to teachers who are really appreciating. I did a call yesterday uh, with the fourth grade school here in Northeast Ohio, and the teacher starts talking about meditation in the school. I'm like, let's do this again. And let's, let's all meditate together because <laughs> this is unbelievable. She brought it up. And so um, those are the kind of things that are based on science that, that I think we could, whether it's food as medicine or the mindfulness and social emotional learning, this is documented. The social and emotional learning, there's a, a meta-analysis of 300,000 kids. It shows an 11 percentile point increase in test scores among kids who have a robust social and emotional learning program, 10% increase in good behavior, 10% decrease in antisocial behavior, 
like it works because you're going to the root cause of the issue and that's the trauma. So there it is. So if we get this opening, boom, you know, all of us, uh, you and me and all of us, we've got to be the ones to step into the void because there, there will be a vacuum. You know, I wonder, well, well, first, first question is a, what is, what's Congress's view or what's your view on what happens next? Like, is this, is the economy reopening? Is, is it going to close again on the second wave? Is, is there any, is is that still all uncertain? I understand there must be a lot of uncertainty about it, but what's kind of the best guess from, from you and your peers? Um, I don't think anybody knows. I mean, I think the key really is going to be this testing and we've got to get the testing ramped up from every epidemiologist or infectious disease person I talk to or read about or, or major CEO, it's, it's all about the, um, the testing so that there's confidence in the marketplace for consumers to say, well, I'm going to go to Panera Bread because um, all their workers are tested and they're certified and everyone's wearing a mask and blah, 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 where they can really build some, some certainty for their customers and to move away from the uncertainty. But if I could just say a word or two on the uncertainty piece, um, you know, one of my uh, favorite Buddhist writers, uh, Trungpa Rinpoche, um, he he writes about uh, K as a great phrase where um, out of chaos comes creativity. And, and so within all of this uncertainty, the wisdom of uncertainty, I mean, nothing really is certain, you know, I mean, obviously, right. right? We thought we were humming along, stock market was up, people were doing good, they thought they were doing good, and then boom, so things can change. Um, but within the uncertainty, you really need a skillful leader to say out of the uncertainty, what what's the next direction, next iteration, and that's the, that's the uh, America 2.0 that we keep talking about. So in some ways, the uncertainty provides some opportunities that may we may not have had. Um, and again, this is in no way to diminish the trauma or all of the things that are going on, but it is a reality that uncertainty does kind of churn up a lot of, of, of things. And, and out of that, that uncertainty can come a new version of ourself. And that's what happened after the depression in World War II. We said, you know, American citizens are never going to have to deal with that kind of uh, insecurity again, uh, at least economic insecurity. And now we have pensions and social security and Medicare and all of these things that came out, Medicaid, all of these things that came out of that. And so now I think it's our turn to figure out, you know, I told my staff the other day, what would FDR do right now? You know, you don't do what FDR did. You have the mindset of someone like FDR and you think, okay, what would he do in this environment, given the technology, the media landscape, blah, 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 just to have that mindset. And I think that's, that could be an appropriate way for us to move forward. Yeah. It's interesting because with FDR, obviously as as soon as he took office, he started his new deal program, created 8 million jobs, didn't get us out of the depression, but did give some, you know, again, certainty and security for those 8 million workers. Again, it wasn't enough to stimulate demand. Maybe it was too little or, you know, it it took the, the war to, to really stimulate demand. But, you know, maybe a new way to think about it is what you're saying. Okay, instead of creating jobs in the Tennessee Valley, Valley, now we we give incentives for learning AI or 3D printing or, you know, 
better, more efficient healthcare system. So there's not so much spending on these, you know, 20,000 a month drugs or whatever. And, you know, the other thing you said that was interesting to me was uh, how Abraham Lincoln said, you know, everything boils down to public sentiment. And I wonder if there's a way, you know, there's, there's people like you, but there's a lot, there's other people who are also thinking in these bipartisan ways, maybe they're, they're Democrats, maybe they're Republicans, maybe they're local politicians, billionaires, but I wonder if there's a way to, to, without insulting either side, to kind of create a manifesto like uh, of like an America 2.0 manifesto that, that everybody could sort of start buying into. And, you know, for instance, I, uh, you know, the, the Brooklyn borough president here, uh, Eric Adams. So Brooklyn, if all the New York city boroughs were cities, Brooklyn would be the third largest city in the United States. So Eric Adams, is, uh, he won Brooklyn with 91% of the vote, vote uh, African-American former police officer. He had diabetes, uh, was, you know, had a bad health all throughout his childhood and so on, changed his health, did, avoided the medicines, got rid of the diabetes, uh, is, you know, th you know, start, starts to think like you, how do we get this into the educational system early on? How do we get, you know, things like a UBI? So there's, there's people in various pockets all around who have similar beliefs that are not, like you say, not Democrat or Republican. I wonder how you build a weird sort of coalition that's not anti-Democrat or anti-Republican, but just new. Yeah. I I've been in contact with him. Oh, okay, good. Um, and I think it's I think it's through Bob Roth, who's the, the, the runs the David Lynch Foundation that teaches transcendental meditation. I think that's how I that's how I got connected with uh, Eric. Um, I but, think Bob was over my apartment. I had a I had a fundraiser for Eric. In full disclosure, because I uh, I believe in these issues. I'm you know, and and Eric's a medi uh, a meditator, right? He's into transcendental meditation. Yeah, yeah. So Bob introduced us, uh, and yeah, I mean that. You know, that was part of my hope uh, with the presidential run is that I could really try to galvanize and at least at least let people come come out of the shadows around around some of these issues. And I think you're right. I mean, I think we are ripe for a kind of manifesto. I got chills when you said that because, you know, I wrote two books, as you mentioned. One yes. was uh, uh, Healing America, uh, which is a book on on mindfulness meditation and the benefits of it. Uh, and there's a chapter in there on the brain science and how the military is using it and schools and this and that. And the other book was on food called The Real Food Revolution. And, and so in my mind, those are the two kind of cornerstones. Like if we can raise people's awareness through practices like this and teach people how to get out of fight or flight mode so that they can really have their brain tuned up then, then all of this other stuff opens up, right? It all makes sense. And if at the same time we're doing that, we can we can really talk about the food piece. And then there's this whole idea of sequestering carbon through regenerative agriculture just like took this whole argument to the next level because now it's an environmental answer, right? And so it's taking care of the soil, sequestering carbon, but also healthy food. So to me, if there's gonna be a manifesto or a, you know, a mission statement, these are kind of the two foundational uh, pieces of this that we can build on. So we're healthy, we're vibrant, we're energetic, we're focused, we're aware, we're dealing with our trauma. And out of that, we can build on, okay, UBI, okay, what's the, how are we going to close the skills gap, you know, and how are we going to then transfer AI or these different things 
in the small town Ohio manufacturer person. So you're probably going to need some governmental uh, program, like an expansion of the manufacturing extension program or something to take the technology and get it to uh, small and mid-sized manufacturers who otherwise couldn't afford to hire McKinsey to do a big, you know, analysis of their business and say, okay, how do we, they just don't do that. They don't have the money to do that. So how does the government maybe help do some of those things? And then you just, you just start building on these ideas. Um, But I think they got to start with the foundational things that really around health, physical health and mental health. And if we deal with that, you know, because if you don't have those two, you get disease, right? You get, you get addiction, um, you get overdose deaths, you get all these deaths of despair. Um, and, uh, yeah. And so, you know, when I ran, I wanted guys like Eric to feel free to like come out of the closet and talk about, they meditate, you know, <laughs> because that's, um, but you look at, look at, look at all these books that are, so look at Mark Hyman, New York times bestseller, multiple, multiple times talking about functional medicine and food as medicine to reverse chronic disease. Look at Andrew Weil. I mean, you go, you go through a lot of these um, people. They're not quacks. They, these are scientists who have figured out, you know, h- how to reverse chronic disease. That's, that's a phenomenal thing that could really take our country to the next level. And that's just one example. Right. There's these cornerstones like food and health. There's UBI to um, kind of A, pick up consumer demand, but B, satisfy the fear that many consumers have right now. Like, they're scared. If you're, yeah. if the economy is closed another six months, they don't know. And let's say they didn't apply. Let's say they couldn't get unemployment. Many people couldn't. It's a scary world. A lot. There's lines at food banks miles long right now. And, yeah. you know, hopefully we, we move towards solutions. I think, you know, you've been, I've noticed you've been very aggressive proposing bills in the past month. Like, I know you're moving towards solutions, which, which yeah. is a, a, a great thing, which is, you know, you always have a voice that, stands out. I always notice your name popping up, you know, cause you always have new ways of looking at things, whether it's six years ago coming out of the closet with meditation or, <laughs> you know, talking about health and talking about now UBI, uh, it's always creative, what should be bipartisan solutions. And I hope, I hope those conversations grow. What's, what's next for you? Are you, are you going to be governor Ryan? Or are you going to go for president Ryan again, speaker Ryan? What's, What's going to happen? You got there's always got to be forward progress. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I you know this has given everybody I think a lot of time. I have a congressional race I'm running now. We're taking that very very seriously in this environment, um, and and trying you know I'm helping Joe Biden and really trying to help to the extent I can uh, shape some of the policies that that they're putting out and really trying to talk to them about some of the things that we've been talking about. Quite frankly, about how I think not only are they the right ideas, but I do think there are constituencies out there that could be activated in a presidential race to really want to be a part of it. And I think there's a lot of crossover appeal on some of these things too. Like I, we were talking earlier about, you know, maybe moderate Republicans or even libertarians. You know, I, I have this visual of like people who buy Men's Health magazine, right? I mean, they're probably not really super political, but they're in the in the food and the there's always a meditation column or something in the Men's Health magazine. Like, who is that person? And how do we get them on our team as opposed to maybe just sitting it out? So trying to craft this broader message is something I'm really interested on. I mean, you know, guys like you and me are always thinking about, well, maybe I'll write another book about X, Y, or Z. I love this idea of uh, a kind of a social compact or a mission statement or 
uh, a manifesto around what America 2.0 looked like. You, now you've given me some some yeah. things to think about. Go for um, it. And and yeah, and then you know, and the UBI thing too. And I, you know, just to say like how to try to keep things optimistic. Um, and and it's really hard with the media, as you know. Um, because we hear stories about and people complaining about, well, there's this low wage worker who's now making more on unemployment than they were making uh, in their job. Right. Because when we added the six hundred dollar federal unemployment right. payment that on average, the average worker would be making what they were making before. So they wouldn't fall behind. But the conversations are all about, oh, the the, the people that are making slightly more. Right. Not a conversation about all the people who are making a lot less because they lost their job or they're not working or their businesses are collapsing. And so how do we how do we shift that part? It's like, yeah, well, you know, I see how that I see how that happened. Um, there's not a broader conversation around those things. And it's always find the negative, find the negative, find the negative. And that's why I think engaging people. Another thing we need and that part of this manifesto is going to be a broad, comprehensive um, civic program around like a Peace Corps for America or emboldening AmeriCorps and really putting some money behind that. We've got to knit this country back together. And we talked a lot about culture shift. We need a bunch of white people to be in a, a black community and a bunch of black people to be in a white community and start making making friends at an early age with each other around some of these civic programs and understanding what a farm worker uh, may go through. Uh, picking tomatoes and and getting sprayed with pesticide and making uh, money and, and getting manipulated through the immigration system. And they're willing to do it so they can send some money back home. Like we all need to see that and understand that during World War II, those boat rides and those uh, service members serving with each other. Right. There was a Jewish kid from uh, New York City and there was a Catholic from Ohio and there was a Protestant from, you know, down south and there was a Baptist from you know, uh, the, the southern part of the state, and they were all in the same platoon or the same unit. And they developed that appreciation for each other, which led to the social growth eventually, where a president who served in, in during World War II was now president pushing civil rights and had some credibility to say, do we ask these, you know, minorities, you know, we ask them to serve the country when it comes time for war and now they don't have full rights here in the United States, or uh, we try to preach freedom to the Soviet Union, but we don't have ultimate freedom here for all of our citizens. That unity that happened during the war allowed for a broader, um, more social progress, you know, that a couple of decades later. And so how do we do that now by having, maybe we don't, we don't have a war, um, but, you know, we have an opportunity now to expand maybe public health, a deeper appreciation for that. Obviously, there's a lot of issues where we could engage a lot of civic participation around the maker movement, for example, which we haven't really talked about. All the 3D printing that was right. happening now with masks and goggles and all this other stuff. Like, how do we how do we turn that into something? These are the ideas we should really be talking about. And that's how you engage people. And that's what I want to be a part of. I don't know what that's going to look like. I don't know if I'll run for anything other than Congress. I don't know if I'll move up on the Appropriations Committee. I don't know. But I, I will tell you for damn sure, I want to be a part of that conversation. I want to shape that conversation. I want to mold that conversation. I want to keep talking to guys like you 
um, about these big ideas until we can assimilate them in the society. And that's what fires me up. And that's what gets me up in the morning. And that's why, you know, I love talking to guys like you because I get some juice from that. And now I got another book to write. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm looking forward to it. Maybe you should do a podcast. Get, you know, that's a good way to, Yeah, it, it gives you a chance to get Nuchin on your podcast or or Pelosi or whoever the Republican leaders are. You can, you could, that's a way to communicate to people through the guise of a podcast. Yeah, that's not a bad idea. You'd be the only uh, congressman podcaster. <laughs> I may have to give that a whirl. Yeah. Well, uh, Congressman Tim Ryan, you've been really generous with your time. I, I, I'm so happy to talk to you, and, and I was really grateful that you, that you said yes to come on the podcast. I hope we talk again soon. And and look, I'm a believer in uh, a lot of these things you're saying. I, I, you know, UBI, I've spent a lot of time thinking about, you know, when, when Andrew Yang was bringing it up. And, you know, again, I didn't always buy into the automation problem, but I do buy into the fact that we need a transition of some sort. And people need to know that they're not going to be penalized in a crisis like this, that, that we're all in this together and that we're going to survive and live and, and make it to the other side. And I think a lot of people are still concerned that that, that won't happen to them. Yeah. So, so I'm well, glad I appreciate it. You're, you're, you're a voice in front of the lines thinking of this. Thanks. So thanks once again. And, and thanks for coming on the podcast. Yeah. Thank you. And thanks for giving me your platform here. I know you got a lot of people who pay attention to what you think about and talk about. So it was great to be with you and I can't wait to do it again. Excellent. All right. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions.